inescapable mission to be captivated by the work, the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus himself, and to think this is what changes lives and transforms communities. For three years, these 12 disciples would follow Jesus. They lived with him. They traveled with him. They heard him teach. They saw incredible miracles. And then with his face set towards Jerusalem, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going there and I'm going to die. Eventually, this took place. He died on the cross. He rose three days later. He came up from the grave and then he looked at his disciples. The disciples looked at him and they're like, what are we supposed to do now? And he says to them, which is the great commission, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. But there is no instruction manual. You don't flip over to the book of uh, the next book and it's the step-by-step evaluation of this is how you make disciples. The Bible is a beautiful story that invites you to join in God's story of what he's doing around the world. In the same way, we don't walk up to our friends and say that they're some sort of project. We work with them. We love them. We show them what the love of Jesus looks like. A couple of weeks ago, Dennis Gully was up on this platform and he said, we never, ever want someone to feel like a project, that there is this event that happens in their lives. We want to genuinely show them what love looks like. How do we do that? It's not about what we get from them. It's about loving them and wanting the best for them. I was reading a book recently, and it talks specifically about this idea. How do you know that somebody is a project versus how they're a friend? And the answer the gentleman said was, because even when they don't do what you want, you still continue to hang out with them. One of my best friends isn't a Christian. He set me up with my wife, so I'm very grateful for that. We were in each other's wedding parties. We serve on the same board together. We text each other regularly. We hang out. He loves sports just like I do. We talk all the time. And so a couple years ago, I invited him to Alpha, and he looked at me and he said, hell no. (laughs) No interest whatsoever. And that's okay. And if you were to ask him, hey, are you and uh, uh, do you feel like a project to Dave? He would look at you and he'd say, I don't even know what that means. What are you talking about? We hang out, we're friends. Over the last number of weeks, we've talked about what does it mean to be on this inescapable mission? We started the series by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and that beautiful verse that ends the chapter that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It talks about us being ambassadors of Christ and taking the good news to everybody we meet. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the art of neighboring and one of the big challenges that we were left with that day is do you actually know who your neighbors are? If you live in a condo building, do you know the people that are on your floor? If you live on a crescent, do you know those who are surrounding you? If you live on the street, do you know those who are beside you? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the art of hospitality, and we went really deep into it at the end, and we said, let's get really, really focused on application. Who are you going to invite into your home? When are you going to do this, and what is that hospitality going to look like? And over the course of this series, we've been building on it week by week. Today, we look at the art of conversation. When people are in your home, what do we say? How do we get to a spiritual conversation? How do we make them feel loved? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We need you to help us show the love of Jesus to others. And sometimes we think about evangelism and we get overwhelmed, we get confused, we get frustrated, we get tongue-tied. God, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would give us a boldness and a courage to share the good news of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that my words would fall down so that your words would be lifted up and that what each individual needs this day, they would receive.
We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're not going to stay there long. Our real passage is in Luke 10. But Luke 9 is a watershed moment. From Luke chapter 4 to Luke chapter 9 verse 50 is Jesus hanging out with the disciples. There's lots of teaching. There's lots of growth that's taking place. And he looks at them and he says to them in chapter 9 verse 1 these words. If you have the passage in front of you, you'll see it says that Jesus sends out the twelve. So Jesus calls the 12 together and gives them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Jesus says to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bread, no bag, no money. Do not even take two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. But at 9 verse 50, there's a change that takes place. From 9 verse 50, he's no longer focusing just on the disciples themselves. He starts focusing on what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And it's this really important idea. It says, if you look at the beginning of chapter 9, it says Jesus sends out the, the 12. But when you look at the beginning of chapter 10, it says Jesus sends out the 72. Here's the first six verses. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. He sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. When whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Why would I focus on that? Why would I talk about chapter 9 and not just jump into chapter 10? And the, the reason is simple. The first nine chapters, the focus is really on the disciples themselves. But in chapter 10, the focus is on all of us. Pastor Rick was the gentleman who just prayed. For those of you who don't know him, he typically leads the worship service in, in the first service. And sitting down with Pastor Rick, he would probably say, hello. And someone would just pour out their heart because that's who Rick is. And you would say, man, Rick is amazing at evangelism. I don't know if I can do that. But then we hit chapter 10 and we recognize this is for all of us. God is sending all of us out into the world because we can't be, the pastors can't be in your neighborhood. The pastors can't be at your workplace. The pastors don't know your extended family. The pastors don't know your group of friends. That's for you. You are the people who are called to do great things. And so these first six chapters is uh, laying the groundwork. What does this look like? How do I set it up so that when I have a conversation with my friend, my neighbor, my coworker, that it's really going to be different? And there's something really special here. When we look at those first couple of verses, we go, okay, Jesus sends out the 72 to those number 70 symbolism. Some people think they do. Some people don't think they do. And you go, well, maybe I'm a bit of a math guy, 12 times 6, is there anything there? Probably not. Uh, it might be of interest to you that the average church in North America is 72 people. But what I think is really special here, because I think there is not necessarily symbolism, but this beautiful allusion to the Old Testament. In Genesis, in the early chapters, when we get to chapter 6, Noah gets into his ark, and for three chapters is the flood account. At the end of chapter 9, Noah and his family come out of the ark and they come down. And do you know how chapter 10 starts? It starts with the table of the nations. Do you know how many people are in the table of the nations? 72. 
And it's this beautiful piece where in Genesis 10, God is rebuilding the nations. And in Luke chapter 10, God is sending people out into the nations. God is saying, I have chosen you. I want you to do great things. I want you to go out into the world and to share the good news of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, you are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do the works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. As the four gospels come to a close... Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been hanging out with his disciples off and on, and he's about to go into heaven. And he says these words in Acts chapter one. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up before their very eyes. Can you imagine what it's like in heaven? Jesus, the son of God, has just come home. And an angel looks over at Jesus and says, so Jesus... What's the plan now? Jesus looks at the angel and says, well, I've spent the last three years building into these 12 disciples. Now they're going to go and make disciples and eventually the good news of what I have done is gonna spread throughout the world. And the angel looks at Jesus and says, they were just a bunch of young adults. Do you think this plan is gonna work? To which Jesus replies, it's the only plan I have. So what does it look like to lay that groundwork? What's the next step that we need to do? If you enjoy taking notes, I believe it starts with praying specifically. If you look at verse two, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he might send laborers out into the harvest. What do we pray? We pray for ourselves. We pray, God, fill us with boldness and with courage so when the opportunity comes to share the gospel, I would take that opportunity. Pray for your friends that don't know Jesus, the two or three or five or 10 friends that you wanna pray for on a regular basis. Pray for the time that you know, hey, I'm gonna have my friend over for coffee, for a meal, we're going on a walk together. Pray for that moment that it might be a powerful time. One of the most incredible men in history for prayer is a man by the name of George Mueller. You won't find him in many Christian history books, but he is a man who did wonderful things in prayer. He lived about 200 years ago, lived in the 1800s, didn't come from a a well-to-do family, didn't have any big aspirations. All he knew is that God was asking him to pray and to do something. In the 1800s, he raised 100,000 pounds in England and built five orphanages and kept them going through prayer. And he decided, I'm going to pray for five friends every single day. And he says in his journal, rarely, with very little exception, did I ever miss a day praying for these men. It was 18 months before the first came to faith. It was five years before the second came to faith. It was six years before the third came to faith. And I can't recall off the top of my head how long he prayed for the other two. But during his lifetime, they never came to know Jesus. And then at his funeral, incredible stories were told. And those two final men decided that they would follow Jesus. When we pray specifically, when we ask God to do great things, that is key in laying down that groundwork. What else? Embrace the risk. Look at verse three, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Oh, that'll be a good time. But we embrace risks all the time. Do you remember the first time you asked somebody out? You're a little nervous, right? Are they gonna go on a date with me? Are they gonna go to Tim Hortons? Are they gonna go to that restaurant? Can I take them to the movie? Are they gonna shut me down? Do you remember when you applied for your first job and said, I don't know what's gonna happen? Or maybe you showed up for a really important job and you think, I really want this. But what's the first day gonna look like? 
What if I mess up? What if I'm not good at this job that I'm supposed to do? Shameless global leadership plug here. A couple of years ago, um, Global Leadership Summit was held in a, a local church, and uh, the speaker set, came up and he said, I have learned how to be rejection proof. And I thought, oh, this is going to be good. And he goes, I wanted to learn how to receive no's. And so I went on a journey, a hundred days of rejection. And some of you are thinking, that sounds terrible. And his stories were incredible. He said, I came up with a hundred things I would do and a hundred times I would um, be told no. So he went to a fast food restaurant, ordered a burger, finished the burger, went to the counter and said, I'd like a free burger refill. Not expecting anything to happen. He was carrying a soccer ball down a local street and he said, hey, I don't have a yard. Can I play soccer in your backyard? He was doing all sorts of crazy things. One guy, he told this story, he said, yeah, sure. Sat in his window drinking coffee, watching him play soccer in his backyard. Amazing. And he said, I learned two things. One, people say yes way more than you would expect them to. Two, after I was rejected a hundred times, you just doesn't, it just doesn't bother you anymore. Now, without a doubt, there are people who are going to be hostile to Christians. But we're not persecuted in Canada. There might be some social implications. Those are real. I totally acknowledge them. But what Jesus doesn't say in this passage, and he says later in the Gospel of John, is if we are sheep out among wolves, he goes, yes, that's true. But I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I will lead you to where I want you to go. I will protect you. I will watch over you. We have a great shepherd. The final idea when it comes to laying down the foundation is to be a bringer of peace. Check out verses five to six. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. If you grew up in church, you might be familiar with these I am statements. We just looked at one in um, John 10 where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 9, he says, I am the light of the world. And so I think sometimes we get confused. Well, if Jesus says that, well, what are we? He says, you also are the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 5, in the greatest sermon that Jesus preaches, the Sermon on the Mount, he says this in verses 5, verse 14 and 16. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I read an article just this past week about this passage. And it said, sometimes people take this and it says, look for receptive people. And the author of the article said, that's a terrible idea. We don't know who's receptive. We're to be the ones who bring peace. When I graduated from college, I had a Bachelor of Theology. I had just spent um, six years crammed into a four-year degree. It was amazing stuff. And I had all this um, time on my hands, and I thought, what am I going to do? Most of the graduates that I went with uh, were all going on to seminary, or they were going to work in churches. And I thought, no, 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 not me. I'm going to go work in a restaurant. And so I went and worked at a popular restaurant. I had never served tables before. And I met somebody and she introduced herself to me. And she said, hi, uh, my name is so-and-so. I'm a bisexual chain-smoking alcoholic. And I thought, oh, this will be interesting. And if I was looking for receptive people, I would have written this individual off. And I would have been completely wrong. Because of all of my coworkers at that particular restaurant, this young lady was more interested in Jesus than anybody else. She wanted hope. She wanted peace. She wanted to know that there was a better life out there for her than the life she was currently living. And her and I talked regularly about spiritual things. 
Can you be a bringer of peace? And so for the first um, few verses of Luke chapter 10, Jesus is laying down the groundwork. He says, pray specifically, embrace, um, embrace the risk and bring peace. So where do you go next? Where does he go next? He says, now spend time with them. I worked really hard on that. I'm sure you can see that. There's this idea though that we think there's the, we meet with our neighbors and we talk with them over the fence. We talk with them in the hallway of our condo buildings and we go, do, do you really know them? And Jesus is saying, invite them to the table, starting in verse seven. Remain in the same house. Eat and drink whatever they provide for the laborers deserve his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So let's just get this right on the table. The first time you talk with somebody, don't bring up God. Don't bring up God. If you weren't here last week, I used the quote from Rosaria Butterfield. This is from her testimony. Because they did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be their friend. It was a friendship without agenda. When we invite people into our homes, when we go out for coffee, when we go on fall walks, we want to show them the love of Jesus. That's the priority. That's the place where we start. Now, please don't hear me say, pastor says, don't talk about Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But the first time you have a real conversation with your friend, even the second time you have a real conversation, don't bring up God. Love them. Get to know who they are. Who has God placed in front of you? And then you can just sprinkle some God stuff into that conversation. What do I mean by sprinkling God stuff? Ask them a question. Hey, what did you do this past weekend? And they'll say, oh man, you may have noticed uh, uh, my camper was gone. We actually have a family cabin and we park out there most of the weekends of the summer. What did you do this weekend? And you can say, oh, I dropped my kids off at youth group on Friday night, or oh, my church was holding this training day, or I was at church on Sunday morning, and then we had hockey in the afternoon, and on Sunday night, we watched Sunday night football, and it's just sprinkled into the conversation. We don't know where it'll go or where it'll take us, but it just slowly works in. Now, one of the ideas when it comes to spending time with them is do you express genuine interest? You've heard the old maxim before, people don't know, um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So ask them open-ended questions and genuinely care about the person in front of you. Hey, what brought you to Edmonton? How long have you lived in Canada? What brings you to our, our neighborhood? What do you do for work? Are there any sports or hobbies that you enjoy? What are you watching on TV right now? How did you and your spouse meet? Ask them questions to get to know them a little bit. And do you know what makes people feel really important? When you ask that follow-up question. So imagine you ask uh, a new couple, hey, how did you and your spouse meet? And they say, oh, you know, we just met online. Now you could leave it at that. I met my spouse online, but then there's that first date. That's where the fun stuff really begins, doesn't it? And you look at them and you say, well, tell me about that first date. What was it like? You met them online. What was it the, like the first time you actually got together? And then you get to know them. They feel like you actually care about them. So I met my spouse online. Um, we met through Facebook. A couple of friends kind of set us up, said you should be Facebook friends. It'll probably work out. Um, you each love Jesus. I'm sure it'll be fine. And so here I am in Edmonton, and I um, meet Jenna online. She's living in Chilliwack. And a couple of weeks later, I say, okay, I'm going to fly out to Chilliwack, and I'm, and I'm going to meet you. 
And so I fly out to Chilliwack and I get, arrive in the airport and she's not there. I'm like, oh, this is great. Have I just been catfished? What's going on here? And so I see this girl, she has long dark hair and I think like, do I walk over to her? Do I say, hey, or, are you Jenna? Are you my girlfriend? <laughs> you know how awkward that would have been? So finally she arrives in late. She's like, I hit a train. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she looks at me and she's like, oh, wow. He has no style whatsoever. <laughs> and her mom said to her, Jenna, you can always change his clothes. It's a lot harder to change his heart. <laughs> she still dresses me. <laughs> These are fun relational moments. And when you get to know somebody, when you dive a little bit deeper, when you express interest, when you show that you genuinely care by asking questions, it shows people you've listened to them. You hear them. You're not asking a question just so that you can talk. These are the fun relational moments that start genuine friendships. Second thing, don't correct them. Don't correct them. You've probably heard the famous um, book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. One of his big ideas is you don't correct people. Now, maybe later on when you have a good relationship, you can say, hey, have you thought about it like this or whatever the case might be. But he says, when you meet them for the first time, don't correct them. Now, let's be honest. One of the major problems in our culture right now is people who uh, think differently can't ever seem to get along. You're on different uh, parts of the political scale. How do you have conversation? You cheer for one sports team. I cheer for the opposition. How do you get along? What is that going to look like? But the deeper we get into relationships, whether it's politics, whether we talk about the sexual ethic of our culture, whether we talk about religion, of course there are going to be disagreements. So we have a choice. You can make this part of your prayer life. Am I going to take a judgmental posture or am I going to take a learning posture? We have people who have strong opinions on politics, strong opinions on culture, strong opinions on what should be watched or should not be watched on TV. But rather than expressing that and saying, I totally disagree with you, can you take a learning posture? Can you say, hey, why do you agree with that sort of political idea? You know, I, I've never seen that TV show. What, what about that TV show grabs you so much? When I used to live in Spruce Grove, um, for whatever reason, we had Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses coming to our door all the time. And straight up, I was probably a little bit rude to them. And so my wife and I have been married for like two years at this point, And she says to me, Dave, um, you're a little bit rude when people come to the door. I want you to think about that the next time we have the Mormons arrive. Can you imagine these three young Mormon men knock on my door? I open the door and I yell, wrong, and slam it. That's not going anywhere. And so the next time the Mormons arrived, there were three of them, three young men, opened the door, I don't know, it's like 7.30-ish at night, and I say, come on in. And we sat down, we had dessert and coffee together. I kid you not, it was just shy of two hours. And we sat and we talked and I had thought about it. Well, the next time they come, what do I say? He said, I can't say you're wrong. That's not going to go anywhere. So I started asking them questions. And if you're unfamiliar with Mormons or how do Christians and Mormons interact, the Mormon history is a little bit, isn't not fleshed out a lot. Outside of Utah, people who study history go, this is bonk. It doesn't work. 
And so I said, I asked them questions about their history. I wanted them to think through things. And because I'm six feet tall, I'm blonde, and they looked at me and they thought I was Mormon. It was great. They were totally open with me. Two things happened. One, they didn't talk to any of my other neighbors that week. That's a win. Two, they left going, that was an interesting conversation. Can we have people leave and going, that's an interesting conversation. We express genuine interest. We don't correct them. So where do we go from there? Verse nine, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. In a phrase, share a verbal witness. Share a verbal witness. What does that look like? Because many of us, we know we should share the gospel, but we don't know how. A recent study was done, this is less than three years old, and it said nearly 50% of evangelical Christians do not want to share a verbal witness because it's not our job to share the good news. That is horrible. Think about it like this. If I had a cure for cancer, and I didn't share it with any of you, how loving would that be? And if we know that the only way to stay out of hell is the good news of Jesus, and we don't share that with people, how horrible would that be? Here's the good news. That same research on evangelism said, if you are a young adult, if you are 20 to 29 years old, 90% of your friends want to hear the good news of Jesus. Nine out of 10. If you're north of 30, to be fair, it drops a little bit, but not a ton. 75% still want to hear the good news of Jesus and hope that someone would share it with them. Three out of four people want to hear about Jesus. This is incredible news and should be an encouragement to us that when we share it, people are open to it. The apostle Peter writes in his first letter, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for anyone who gives, asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So you've sprinkled your conversation with Jesus the first couple of times you've met. You said, oh, I took a marriage seminar at church. Or, oh, yeah, we had soccer practice and then ran off to a family dinner. Sunday morning, we went to church. Sunday afternoon, we watched football. But then you look at your friend, you say, hey, I've talked about church a little bit, but I've, I've never asked you. Do you have a background in church or what do you think about spiritual things? It's not intimidating. You've already hung out with them one or two times. This is what I do. What do you do? Ask them what they're thinking about. Let them talk, see where the conversation goes, and people might be way more interested than you think. If three out of four people north of 30 are open to spiritual conversations, they might want to engage with this. They might want the good news of the gospel. Then you have your elevator speech. You're not preaching. You want to say it in about 40 seconds or less. How has Jesus impacted your life? For those of you who take notes, even if you are on the note fence, this is huge. How has Jesus impacted your life? And maybe you say, man, being part of church is like being part of a large family, and it's just awesome. You know, I, uh, my wife and I, we were going through some marital struggles, and we met with the pastor a handful of times, and he saved our marriage. You know, I'm a part of a small group and just journeying together with these three couples, with this group of guys, with this group of gals. It's amazing. I was out for breakfast with someone this past week, and he said to me, without any prompting at all, he says, when I look around this world, all I see is anger and vitriol and people on other sides just always competing. The reason I go to church is to hear about the hope of Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. How long was that? 20 seconds, maybe? And he says, 
um, this good news. Personal stories are powerful. Not only are they true, but they invite you deeper into relationship with one another. Your story of how Jesus has changed your life is one of the most impactful ways you can share the gospel. One comment before I move on. Keep it short. I know I just used the phrase elevator speech. I know I said 60 seconds or less. I am very serious about that. A study was done, I read that from an academic article about two years ago that said if you speak in a conversation for longer than two minutes at one time, you are significantly less likable than if you were to keep your conversation short. If you speak for two minutes at a time in a conversation and don't let the other person say anything, you are significantly less likable. Keep it to 30 seconds, 40 seconds, and engage that conversation, keep it going. Now, it's not like we can hit pause on a conversation and you look at your flow chart and say, well, if he responds this way, I do this. If she responds that way, I do that. And it might be in the same conversation. It might be at a later date. But how did you meet Jesus? How did you meet Jesus? You're going to see that we're uh, progressing in difficulty here. It starts with uh, sharing a verb, um, how has Jesus impacted your life? But how have you met him? Have I talked about yet how powerful stories are? It changes everything. Now, maybe you're like me and you grew up in a church, you grew up with wonderful Christian parents and you think, Dave, I don't have much of a story. I kind of came here when I was a baby and I've been going to church ever since. And that's wonderful. Was there a relationship? Was there an event? Was there a program? Was there a person? Was there a time that God radically transformed your life? My parents are amazing. They've been married for uh, 45 years. They've lived in the same house for 45 years. They've attended the same church for 45 years. And I'm so grateful for them. My youth pastor changed my life. When I went on a mission trip to downtown Vancouver, it changed my life, serving those who were disenfranchised. A couple prophetic dreams changed my life. Doing mission work with others changed my life. What's changed yours? What can you say in 30 or 40 seconds where it says, this is how I met Jesus and this is how it's changed my life? Last thing and then I'll wrap up. What did Jesus do? My friends, this is the art of sharing the gospel. At some point in our conversations, what did Jesus do? There's a number of different things, and this is why it's truly the art of conversation. It's the art of sharing the gospel. Maybe you're familiar with the bridge illustration. Maybe you want to grab a piece of paper or maybe use your phone and, and write it down. And you say to your friend, you know, you grab a napkin, you grab a, a pen or grab a scrap piece of paper, and you say, you know, um, I'm standing on one side of the cliff. And I've fallen short. I know the word sin is a little bit taboo. I've fallen short. I've missed the mark. God is perfect. I am not. Whatever language you feel like you can use. You say, I've sinned and it's led to death. I lied. I hit a parked car. I didn't leave a note. I've had a really bad past. And I can't be perfect. And then you show the other side of that cliff and there is God. And you say, he's holy and he's perfect. And he has done nothing wrong. And he sent his one and only son, Jesus, and Jesus did live a perfect life. He's fully God and he's fully man, and he's the bridge in which we can cross over. Maybe that's not your jam. Maybe you want something else. Maybe you're familiar with the Romans road. Maybe you enjoy memorizing scripture. This is easy for you. And you say, um, your friend believes in the Bible, but isn't quite sure what it means. And you say, you know, in Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
But just three chapters later in Romans 6, 23, it says the wages of that sin is death, but the good news of Jesus is that it gives eternal life. And then Romans 5, verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And then in Romans 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is great news about sharing the gospel, making it a little bit easier. Maybe you've memorized John 3, 16. Maybe your friend went to Catholic school growing up, knows the verse well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Maybe you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed. You think, here is Jesus, and you kind of play it out for your friend. Fully God, fully man. Born of a virgin. Lived a perfect, holy life. Never sinned once. Was suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified, dead, and buried, and then raised back to life. And I believe one day he's coming back. How are you going to share a verbal witness and the good news about Jesus? Friends, takes us to the best part. Jumping all the way down to verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Can you imagine being the 72? And you come back and you're like, Jesus, Jesus. It was amazing. People listened to us when we talked about what you've done and who, who you are and all the things about you. We cast pe- demons out of people. We saw the sick were healed. This is incredible. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't rejoice in that. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? My friends, this is incredibly beautiful. Some days we're going to cast out demons. Some days we're going to feel the oppression in the dark night of the soul. Some days we're going to pray for people and they're going to be healed. Some days we're going to pray and the answer is no. Some days we're going to say, wow, Jesus gave me an opportunity to share the gospel. And some days our friends are going to look at us and say, I am not even remotely interested But what Jesus is saying here is don't get hung up on that. Don't get hung up on the really good days. Don't get hung up on the really bad days. Get hung up on this. Rejoice, for your name is in heaven. We are captivated by an inescapable mission that whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's where we rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Please forgive us when we have the opportunity to share the gospel in the past and we have bailed. We've been scared. We don't feel like we can share the story. We don't know what to say or how we'll be received. And God, instead we pray that you would fill us with boldness and with courage, that we would be so fascinated by the gospel, so encaptured and captivated by the good news that we would say we have to share. This is the good news of Jesus and how he has transformed our life. So God, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be great neighbors. We would be incredibly hospitable. We would show the love of Jesus and that our conversation would be filled with love and with grace. We 
We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.